Is there anyone around the president who shakes their head when they hear him rambling in the Rose Garden like this? Uh, no, Anderson, we are down to Kool-Aid drinkers and next of kin uh, here at the Trump White House. <laughs> That's what we're down to, says CNN. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, that's one reason. I got the feeling that something right. Certainly is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK. 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New, uh, where am I? New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, in, uh, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from Bradblog.com. Desi Doyen is already laughing at me. <laughs> Because I am already confused. Yes, you're already having trouble saying words today. I Well, there's a lot of uh, breaking news that yes, has yes, suddenly shuffled everything I had planned to do. As happens. So I will be making this up as I go along, as usual. Some of this uh, breaking news, by the way, is good news. Yay. So let's start there. You can breathe, Desi, Yay. for now. A sigh of relief uh, following the news that broke uh, late during yesterday's broadcast that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been admitted to the hospital due to a likely infection of some sort. Well, now you can exhale. We can all exhale, at least for now. Just before airtime, the news broke that Justice Ginsburg has now been discharged from the hospital and is reportedly doing well after treatment for the possible infection. Ooh, okay. See there? Yeah. Told you. She underwent an endoscopic procedure at Johns Hopkins to clean out a bile duct stent that was placed last August after experiencing fever and chills. According to a spokesperson yesterday and today, court spokesperson announced simply that Justice Ginsburg has been discharged from the hospital, is now home and doing well. Yay. Whatever that may mean. Uh, But we'll take it. We'll take it for now. Good news for the 87 year old justice and good news for the entire nation, I would say. A bit more breaking news just before air today. Twitter announced that accounts belonging to Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Elon Musk and Apple, among others, 
were compromised on Wednesday and uh, posted tweets that appeared to promote a cryptocurrency scam. Those accounts, along with those of former President Barack Obama, Kanye West, Kim Kardashian West, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, and Mike Bloomberg, hmm, they all posted similar tweets. They didn't. Someone did in their name on their accounts soliciting donations via Bitcoin to their verified profiles on Wednesday. The the tweet from Bill Gates that wasn't him, but from his account said, everyone is asking me to give back. And now is the time promising to double all payments to a Bitcoin address for the next 30 minutes. Hmm. In a uh, tweet on Wednesday, Twitter's support account said, we're aware of a security in, in, uh, incident impacting the accounts on Twitter. We're investigating and taking steps to fix it. Little more than an hour after the attack began, Twitter apparently moved to prevent holders of verified accounts from tweeting. A CNN test showed non-verified accounts could still tweet. So... I'm verified at the Brad blog, but uh, to be honest, I haven't had time to tweet today, so I don't know <laughs> if I've been uh, locked or hacked or can tweet at all at the moment. But here's the point. If a multi-billion dollar company like Twitter cannot protect the accounts of people like Joe Biden, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Apple, Barack Obama, etc., how do you suppose your county election office is going to do this year during the November elections? Not well would be my guess. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Ransomware attacks remain my single biggest concern, frankly, about this November's elections. This was not a ransomware attack per se, but it was similar to one uh, that we have seen in um, metropolitan, well, various jurisdictions around the country this year including the entire state of Louisiana earlier this year, where the computers basically were locked by hackers until uh, money was coughed up, uh, usually in the form of Bitcoin. And it doesn't even have to just be a ransomware attack, which is obviously bad enough. It could also be monkey wrenching with uh, voter registration system or the the public-facing websites that report the results. Yeah, I'm particularly worried about the ransomware attacks, though, because if that happens on Election Day and the computers cannot be used since we now rely on uh, computers, even in even in jurisdictions which use hand-marked paper ballots for voters at the polling place, a lot of those jurisdictions still use electronic poll books, meaning if those electronic poll books are blocked out, then people cannot vote. Yeah, they can't check in to vote because that then allows them to use the machines to vote, too. It's madness. They don't have uh, paper backup poll books at those uh, locations. Uh, In any event, the sheer number of prominent accounts impacted made it arguably the biggest security incident in Twitter's history. A hack like this is particularly concerning, CNN reports, not just because of any financial scam that can be run, but because so many world leaders use Twitter. And some, like Donald Trump, use it to announce major policy decisions. A, a hack that took over an account belonging to one of those leaders could have devastating consequences. Yes, it could. But frankly, how would you know? How would you know if it was a tweet that was hacked in Donald Trump's name or an actual tweet? But yes, yeah, so could hacking our elections could have devastating consequences, CNN, and it may already have uh, had such consequences. We don't know because nobody was ever allowed 
to check the voting machines or the computer tabulators or actually hand count the ballots cast in 2016. And it seems we still haven't learned our lesson. By the way, within minutes of those tweets being posted uh, today in the names of Bill Gates and others, a Bitcoin account that appeared in some of those uh, tweets showed more than 320 transactions receiving more than $113,000. So, yeah, it worked. You suppose those hackers won't try something this November? And speaking of which, speaking of this November, uh, y'all remember uh, Kansas former Republican Secretary of State Chris Kobach, the GOP voter fraud fraudster who ran his entire campaign for Secretary of State in Kansas on stopping massive voter fraud that he insisted was being carried out in Kansas by Democrats and the illegals, the illegal immigrants, as he calls them, who uh, who support those Democrats. Well, instead of any actual huge, massive voter fraud scheme actually occurring in uh, in Kansas, as we learned over two terms as secretary of state, uh, Kobach was able to find no more than really a handful of incidents of fraud. I think it was less than a dozen usually by elderly Republican voters who owned two homes in two different states and voted at both of them, often uh, only in local elections. So, in other words, they weren't voting twice for the same candidates in, in two different places. And it was often because they had no idea they were not allowed to do so. They thought, oh, I own a home here, so I can vote in the local elections here, right? Even though I'm registered to vote back in Kansas for the presidential uh, election. So, uh, you know, I like I said, I think he got about nine convictions or something uh, over his eight years in office. That was Secretary of State Chris Kobach. Uh, he, by the way, is is running for the Senate this year, trying to get the Republican Senate nomination, which Democrats are really hoping he gets, because the last time he ran for office for governor in 2018, he turned over the office to a Democrat for the first time in decades. Anyway. Here's some actual voter fraud, yes, in the great state of Kansas. And, yep, it was done by a Republican. And, yep, as it turns out, he is a Republican U.S. congressman, a sitting U.S. congressman from Kansas. Kansas Congressman Steve Watkins was charged on Tuesday with three felonies and a misdemeanor over allegations that he voted illegally in 2019 in a local election in the state. Shawnee County District Attorney Mike Kagay announced he was charging Watkins, a first-term U.S. Uh, House lawmaker, on four counts, interference with law enforcement, providing false information, voting without being qualified, unlawful advanced voting, and failing to notify the DMV of change of address, according to the Shawnee County Court records. The first three charges are felonies. The fourth is a misdemeanor. Apparently, Watkins reportedly registered to vote at the address of a Topeka UPS store. He uh, registered that as his home address for the 2019 municipal elections and allegedly voted in the wrong city council district along with it. He did not actually live, as it turns out, at the Topeka UPS store. You think? That was not his legal residence in the great state of Kansas. So registering to vote there where he didn't live and then actually voting with that address, 
Those are all felonies, three of them, in fact. The Topeka Capital Journal in December of last year first reported that Watkins had signed the allegedly improper address on voter registration documents. The lawmaker's office later said that Wat- uh, said that it was just a mistake made by Watkins. He accidentally, I guess, gave the address of a UPS store as his legal address for voting purposes. Really? Watkins maintained his innocence uh, late on Tuesday regarding the charges. He said they were hyper-political. They were very suspicious. Sheriff Brian C. Hill said in a news release last night that the charges, quote, are reflective of the factual allegations that were discovered by detectives during the course of this investigation. The D.A. said the probe, which he requested after news of the alleged conduct was brought to his attention in December, was delayed significantly because of the COVID-19. Though Watkins does have a reason to wonder about the timing, the uh, district attorney here, Kagay, who is a Republican himself, announced the charges roughly 30 minutes before Watkins was set to take the stage with his GOP challengers in the primary on Tuesday night for a televised primary address, uh, uh, debate, I should say. The first-term lawmaker is facing a uh, primary challenge from the Kansas treasurer, Jake LaTurner, and a moderate, Dennis Taylor. At the debate on Tuesday, Watkins sought to cast the charges as an attempt to undercut his re-election campaign, saying that polls showed him leading And that led to, quote, desperation and endless investigations, just like Donald Trump. He vowed that he would get his name exonerated. Well, it is a little bit like Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, it's a lot like Donald Trump. Now, uh, for, for reasons beyond the, quote unquote, endless investigations, Now, no announcements have been made as to whether the charges will impact his standing on Capitol Hill right now. But the House GOP did pass rules in 2018 mandating that members lose their committee assignments if they are indicted. So in theory, he will lose his committee assignments if the GOP follows their own rules. But why should they? If they hold Watkins accountable for voting from an address which isn't his actual legal residence... They would have to do the same thing to the president of the United States who did the exact same thing. He registered to vote last year in the state of Florida using his private for-profit commercial club, Mar-a-Lago, as his, quote, legal residence, even though it's a club. It is not a residence. And he agreed back in 1993 when he purchased Mar-a-Lago, which had been a private residence, he agreed to t- when when he was allowed to turn it into a club that it would not be used by anyone as a residence. So if Republicans are going to hold Watkins accountable for, yes, actual voter fraud in Kansas and potentially send him to jail for it, uh, who's going to hold Donald Trump accountable for the exact same thing? Republicans in Texas sent Crystal Mason, an African-American woman, to jail recently for five years because she accidentally voted after having committed a crime, not knowing that she was not allowed to do so in Texas. Her vote was never even counted. But, you know, her vote wasn't counted, but Watkins' vote was counted. In Kansas, Trump's vote was counted in Florida. Will either of them go to jail for it? 
I don't know. Maybe. Maybe Watkins. We'll see. But Trump hasn't had charges brought against him by the state of Florida, even though a criminal complaint has been filed, which mandates that law enforcement must investigate him for that uh, alleged crime. It's not alleged. It is a crime. I saw his voter registration application and I saw the agreement in 1993. So, yeah, Donald Trump committed voter fraud in the state of Florida and should be charged with it. So, Florida, you're going to let him uh, are you going to let him vote there again, by the way, in November and by absentee, as he did earlier this year, fraudulently. For that matter, will anybody be able to vote by mail this November if the ongoing assault on the U.S. Postal Service continues? It's an assault that has uh, we now know been going on literally for 50 years which one man uh, has been behind each and every incremental assault on the U.S. Postal Service. That was recently revealed by my guest coming up today, right now. Can you guess who that man is? Lisa Graves of True North Research joins us right after this break for that conversation. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As reported by the Washington Post on Tuesday, the new head of the U.S. Postal Service established major operational changes on Monday that could slow down mail delivery, warning employees that the agency would not survive unless it made, quote, difficult changes to cut costs. Critics, however, say that such a philosophical sea change would sacrifice operational efficiency and, importantly, cede its competitive edge to UPS, FedEx, and other private sector rivals. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy told employees in a memo to leave mail behind at distribution centers if it delayed letter carriers from their routes. According to internal USPS documents obtained by The Washington Post and verified by the American Postal Workers Union. If the plants run late, they will keep the mail for the next day, according to a document titled New Postmaster General's Expectations and Plan. Traditionally, postal workers are trained not to leave letters behind and to make multiple delivery trips to ensure timely distribution of letters and parcels. The new memo, however, tells postal workers essentially, forget about it. You can get it tomorrow. What's the rush? It says the agency will prohibit 
overtime and strictly curtail the use of other measures that local postmasters use to ameliorate staffing shortages. Mark Diamondstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, which represents about 200,000 USPS employees, said that overtime is being used because people need their packages in this pandemic. They need their mail in this pandemic. They need their medicines in this pandemic. They need their census forms. They need ballot information. The memo from the new Postmaster General cited U.S. Steel, a one-time industry titan that was slow to adapt to market changes in order to illustrate what is at stake. Quote, in 1975, they were the largest company in the world, the memo states. They are gone. Well, in fact, U.S. Steel is not gone. It is a $1.7 billion company with 27,500 employees. But, you know, this is the Trump administration. It's a, a, anyway an appointee of the Trump administration now as postmaster general. And facts are really not to be expected from these guys, right? Analysts say the documents present a stark reimagining of the USPS that could chase away customers, especially if the White House gets the steep package rate increases that it wants, that it is demanding. Uh, and it would put the already beleaguered independent agency, which is entirely funded by purchases of postage, not by taxpayer dollars, into still deeper financial peril as private sector competitors embark on hiring sprees to build their own delivery networks during the COVID pandemic. Congress authorized the USPS to borrow $10 billion from the Treasury Department for emergency operations in, uh, in early coronavirus uh, relief bills, but postal leaders have yet to access the money due to disagreements with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who attached terms on the loan that would turn over operations of much of the otherwise independent Postal Service to his department. Yes, to the Treasury Department. The Postal Service's governing board appointed Louis DeJoy, a major Trump donor, in the middle of that uh, back and forth with the uh, Treasury Department just a month or two ago. Steep drop-offs in first-class and marketing mail, the Postal Service's most profitable item, have exacerbated the USPS's cash crisis. Postal leaders predicted at the start of the pandemic that their agency could be insolvent by October without congressional intervention. Single-piece first-class mail volume fell as much as 20% week-to-week in April and May. Marketing mail, the hardest-hit segment, tumbled 30 to 50% week-to-week during the same period. Skyrocketing package volume, however, was up 60 to 80% in May as the coronavirus pandemic made consumers more reliant on delivery services. That has propped up the Postal Service's finances for the time being and has helped to stave off immediate calamity. But the packages also have intensified the USPS's competition with Amazon, FedEx, and UPS. Philip Rubio, a professor of history at North uh, Carolina A&T State University and a formal postal worker himself, told The Post, this is the framing uh, the U.S. Postal Service, a 245-year-old government agency, and comparing it to its competitors that could conceivably go bankrupt. He added, comparing it to U.S. Steel says exactly that 
We are a business, not a service. That, Rubio notes, is troubling. The Trump administration has consolidated control over the Postal Service, traditionally an apolitical institution, during the pandemic by making a financial lifeline for the nation's mail service contingent upon the White House political agenda. In April, Trump called the agency a joke. He demanded it quadruple package rates before he would authorize any emergency aid or loans. That is thought to be a shot at Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, but also the owner of the Washington Post, who Donald Trump despises. The changes also worry vote-by-mail advocates who insist that any policy that slows delivery could imperil access to mailed and absentee ballots. It reinforces the need, they say, for Congress to provide the agency emergency coronavirus funding immediately, as Congress has provided to pretty much every other industry and business out there over the past several months during the pandemic, just not to the Postal Service, despite attempts by Democrats in the House to do just that. Congressman Bill Pascrell of uh, Democrat of New Jersey said attacks on the USPS not only threaten our economy and the jobs of 600,000 workers, with our states now reliant on mail voting to continue elections during the pandemic, the destabilizing of the post office is a direct attack on American democracy itself. But of course, that maybe is a feature, not a bug. Pascrell noted it has been 59 days since the House passed $25 billion to keep the USPS alive. The Senate, he says, must pass it now. Democracy hangs in the balance. Democracies hang in the balance as Americans become more reliant on the Postal Service for vote-by-mail ballots than ever before amid the surging coronavirus pandemic in the U.S., may also be just a surprise bonus to what we now know, thanks to new research, is just the culmination of a years-long effort by the right to gut the U.S. Postal Service, or at least to privatize it. Last week, the National Nonprofit Research and Policy Organization called In the Public Interest, a group that helps the public understand how privatization of public goods impacts service quality, democracy, equity, and government budgets. They published a new deep dive on the decades-long effort to undermine and privatize the venerable U.S. Postal Service, which has prided itself for more than 200 years on delivering to every address every day in the country. In introducing the new research, they write the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed the already struggling U.S. Postal Service to the brink of financial collapse. But the most trusted and popular institution in America hasn't been struggling by accident. Since the 1970s, a concerted effort to popularize the fringe idea of privatizing the Postal Service has been advanced for nearly five decades with the support of one man, one man. Can you guess who that is? That would be the billionaire and libertarian ideologue Charles Koch, chairman and chief executive officer of Koch Industries. Well, who could have guessed it? Well, you know who didn't need to guess, but who actually knows that Koch has been behind this for years? 
That would be our friend Lisa Graves, who, like so many of the landmark exposés on the Koch brothers in years past, authored this new report as well. Lisa Graves is the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org and its editor-in-chief. She has spearheaded now over many years several major breakthrough investigations into those distorting American democracy and public policy, including, of course, the Koch brothers. She also happens to be a former deputy assistant AG at the U.S. Justice Department, a former chief counsel in the U.S. Senate, and a former deputy chief for the U.S. court system. But she is a current longtime friend of the broadcast. Welcome back, Lisa Graves. Thank you, Brad. I am a current and ever longtime fan of the broadcast. That's true. Well, you're very kind, uh, as always, to join us. Uh, Lisa, your, your new research here pulls together a bunch of threads. Uh, sort of previously known information, I think, about the efforts going all the way back to the 1970s to uh, push for the privatization of the U.S. Postal Service, uh, including the Libertarian Party's platform in 1976 calling for abolishing the USPS through the 80s and Ronald Reagan's privatization commission on up through the 2000s under George W. Bush and your good friends at the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alec. And every step of the way, it seems, Charles Koch, sometimes along with his now late brother David, but Charles Koch has been behind pretty much all of it in one way or another. Am I reading it correctly? That's right. You know, what, what we discovered in looking into this, what I found was that Charles Koch had staked the key players in this effort to move this totally fringe idea, this reactionary, radical idea of privatizing the Postal Service, to move that idea from the fringes into a real possibility here uh, with the Postal Service. And he staked Reason Magazine and Robert Poole, who became... The, the person who popularized the term privatization, his right-hand man uh, for a number of years, Richard Fink, worked on the privatization commission of Reagan and pushed for postal private and private postal service. Mm -hmm. Then they brought on uh, James Miller, who had been in the Reagan administration as a leader now um, of what was then called Citizens for a Sound Economy is, and mm -hmm. is now known as Americans of Prosperity. And Miller was an aggressive advocate of privatizing the postal service he then got put on the, po the board of uh, governors for the Postal Service with the help of uh, Susan Collins. He was backed by Mitch McConnell for this post and, and in that role helped push through changes to the accounting of the Postal Service that saddled it with massive debt. Mm -hmm. And um, now, most recently, you have this new development with Lou DeJoy, Trump's uh, pick, basically, to be the Postmaster General, mm -hmm. a man who's completely unfit and unworthy for such a position of responsibility, who was put into that position by this board of governors of the Postal Service, who I actually think should be handing in their resignations right now. Mm. It's, you know, irresponsible and reckless for them to put have put this partisan hat, this Republican fundraiser at the helm of the Postal Service at the time that it's, it's facing uh, such a great need to have a leader who is committed to it as a truly public institution, versus someone who's behaving in this predatory way to, to try to basically ruin the Postal Service and make it, push it toward the idea that it should be a for-profit company. So, 
you know, it's in the worst possible hands at the worst possible time. And I think there were a couple of uh, members of the, uh, the the Postal Service Governing Board who who actually did resign just a few weeks ago, right before uh, DeJoy was was uh, was was nominated or before he was appointed as Postmaster General, as I as I uh, recall. The Lisa and I want to sort of get dive into questions about why what's what's in it for these guys in uh, in a moment and 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 run through, you know, what some of the efforts of people like Susan Collins in all of this. But in your brief uh, at uh, in the public interest, you cite historian uh, Christopher Shaw, author of Preserving the People's Post Office. Uh, and an article that he wrote published by the American Conservative Magazine that says conservative opponents of privatization of the Postal Service recognize that not only is the service enshrined in the Constitution, this government agency supports national security, sustains local communities, assists small businesses and fosters national unity. Before you then go on to ask, so how did we get to the point where the people who represent us in Washington, D.C., in this case, so-called conservatives, are willing to kill the most trusted and popular institution in America? Which is a great question, but before you answer it, what does the Constitution actually require for the Postal Service, and is there any constitutional protection against it being privatized the way these guys clearly seem to be doing? Well, the Constitution establishes the Postal Service, and so it is a, a constitutional body. It's actually one of the few uh, agencies that is established in the original Constitution that was established by that uh, founding document. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that there would, should be tremendous challenges to any effort to privatize this public institution that has, you know, our, the first Postmaster General was Benjamin Franklin. It's mm-hmm. been around for a long time. It's weathered so many storms in this country to ensure that Americans, no matter what how small the town is they live in or how big the city is, that they can have um, universal mail, basically access to mail at a low cost uh, mm-hmm. anywhere in the country that really unites us as a nation. And these postal workers right now are really on the front lines in this COVID crisis, delivering uh, needed checks and mm-hmm. medicines and other supplies to their fellow citizens, to their neighbors. And to have it be at, at the brink of bankruptcy, in part due to this um, this effort by these Koch allies to uh, you know push it toward privatization is extraordinary. And then to have this man at the helm mm-hmm. of it who is um, just a political partisan tool uh, for Trump. And as you point out, some of the Board of Governors did resign, but the ones who voted in favor of him should resign yeah. because they have utterly violated... I think, uh, what of, of their duty to the American people and to this institution being a public institution by putting such a character uh, in charge of that agency. Um, so you asked what's at stake. You know, the Postal Service processes, at least um, pr- prior to COVID and still mm-hmm. enormous, enormous numbers now, but prior to COVID, nearly 500 uh, million pieces uh, of mail a day. Um, it, it, it processes an enormous quantity of um, basically commerce for us, things that um, the email can't do for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many physical goods um, and letters that move through the mail. And so it's a huge business, basically, um, in the minds of the for-profit sector that they would like a piece of. Um, if they were able to get a penny on every single letter letter processed or a dollar on every single letter processed, they could you know, create a mountain of fortune for themselves, a private fortune. 
um, rather than have a public institution that is not operated at a for-profit, you know, for-profit that's gouging the American people. Everyone that listens to your show knows the difference in price between mailing a letter and and mailing a FedEx package. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, 10 to 1, uh, if not 20 to 1. Well, um, well, and that's an expense that the American people would be, would be forced to bear if this agency were privatized. In the meantime, if it's destabilized right before its election, mm-hmm. that sort of destabilization could not happen at a worse time. But it would be convenient for a Trump yep. ally uh, to destabilize it since Trump is trying to attack the very idea of vote by mail. Exactly. And, of course, uh, setting beside what seems to be just a lucky circumstance for uh, for these uh, people who want to do away with the post office, that it happens to come at a time when we when the country needs them more than ever. You know, you know that, you know, there are people now in D.C. that are willing to kill the most trusted and popular institution in America. Surely they know there will be blowback for for that. Apparently they don't care. But it begs the question, you know, what is in it for Charles Koch? Uh, does he have a stake in these companies? Does he have a stake in in, in uh, FedEx, in UPS? Why has he been at it now for 50 years? Is it ideological? Does Is he just, you know, he ran as a, a libertarian years ago, uh, you know, who and they think everything should be privatized. So is it ideological in that sense for him, or is it about, you know, personal monetary gain at the expense of the country and constitution here? So uh, we don't know the true extent of Charles Koch's investments. Um, there's some information about uh, his fossil fuel investments in Chris Leonard's new book, Coke Plan, but mm-hmm. we don't know if he has any investments in Federal Express or UPS or any of the other courier services. What we do know is that he has taken a, a, a hostile ideological approach to the Postal Service um, and the public institutions really for decades now. Um, we, I, I put some... Uh, quotes in that um, story uh, about uh, his approach to, you know, just core institutions, even like Social Security, mm-hmm. the idea of getting rid of it versus getting rid of it incrementally. So he um, he does not believe, uh, based on the, the institutions that he's funded, that there should be a public postal service. He thinks anything that they think can be privatized should be privatized. Um, there's a sort of a view of government as basically being a night watchman or a security guard to guard property, and that's really its only role, and that everything else should be um, should be handled by the private sector. The, the, the fake idea, basically the misleading idea that the, that the market knows best, that the free market knows best, it doesn't know best. Um, it, has, uh, it has created a lot of ruin, uh, as we've seen with some of these bubbles and these other crises uh, in our economy, and it, and it doesn't value... Uh, or properly value the value of American workers versus um, rewarding companies that pay its executives ex- extreme salaries while um, paying workers, you know, the minimum wage and, mm-hmm. and having those workers uh, have to need have to get subsidies from the government. And so um, Charles Koch uh, and his and his allies like Robert Poole, you know, they have a hostility to the notion of government. They don't think there should be public highways and public roads. Everything should be done by toll. Um, you have a situation uh, where, with Robert Poole where he and his allies have even you know, called having public tennis courts and public pools socialism, <laughs> public schools that socialism, having wow. fire, fire departments that socialism. Um, this is an extreme, extreme view of, um, of policy and politics that most Americans 
no matter what party, I think, fundamentally disagree with, would disagree with those characterizations. But that is the ideological root of mm. this agenda against the Postal Service. They don't think there should be, um, you know, uh, public prisons. There should be for-profit prisons. Right. Um, things should be done by fees. Basically, the situation in, in Missouri a couple years back that the Justice Department looked into in terms of Ferguson, Missouri, and how people were being hit with all these fees, right. and then that was causing them to be, um, you know, vulnerable to be arrested or mm-hmm. thrown in jail. Um, this, this sort of fee-based system of government versus government as a public good that belongs to us all, that we support through our tax dollars, that benefits us all, that we have roads that benefit us all, and it shouldn't just be uh, toll roads everywhere. You know, they have, they have struck out and probably mapped out, basically, Charles Koch has mapped out a very dystopian view of America and has tried to push it into reality. They oppose having public transportation. Mm-hmm. They fought that in cities uh, in Nashville and other places. They've opposed having Amtrak, any sort of uh, public train system. They work to, uh, to, to take away having uh, public airports. They want public airports to be sold to uh, the highest bidder and operated by the private sector. Um, they don't want there to be um, public officials engaged in security at airports or, um, you know, they were opposed to having these um, uh, people who were the air traffic controllers, the federal employees. Right. You know, it's just one thing after another where they have attacked the idea of the public, including public parks, national parks, uh, public parks, local parks. Wow. These are all anathema to these very fringy right-wing libertarians who have been fueled and funded and stoked by Charles Koch and his billions from Koch Industries. And you know, if it was only, if it was an ideological difference, if 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 that's all it was, if that's what they felt, oh, we, you know, government shouldn't be in these uh, in these pr- particular businesses, services, or whatever. It should be privatized. We should get government out of it. If it was only for that, I would disagree with them, but I would feel like, okay, it's an ideological disagreement. But it just so happens that in every single one of these cases, these people, very specifically these people, stand to make billions of dollars personally from the privatization of these various entities that you're talking about. I think it's not an accident, uh, and you uh, write about this in your your research here, your brief, uh, about the fact that we've got the Koch-funded American Legislative Exchange Council, which is pushing all sorts of legislation like this all over the country. And as it turns out, UPS and FedEx are some of the biggest funders of the uh, of ALEC at the same time. So it's not just an ideological push. It's a profit, a for-profit push, it seems to me. Am I reading that correctly? Is it is it just uh, as, as basic as that? Well, it, I think what's happened in the United States is that there's been this merger, this marriage between uh, this ideology of this libertarian, mm-hmm. uh, so-called libertarianism, uh, or these theories of libertarianism that um, has been merged with uh, some companies that really want to profit uh, from that. And so you have both this profit motive and that comes into play along with this ideological agenda, and Alex really is a place in which some of those marriages, in essence, are mm-hmm. consummated. Yeah. I was really surprised uh, when, I was, when I was launching Alec Exposed and going over the bills that the whistleblower provided me where corporations had voted as equals with state legislators on these so-called model bills mm-hmm. before they were introduced in state houses. I was shocked to see in there uh, a, a bill to uh, bar the Postal Service from carrying the military ballots. 
They wanted yes. only for-profit companies to carry those ballots. Why? Well, uh, you can guess, since uh, two of the big funders of ALEC are two for-profit uh, courier services, FedEx and UPS, as you point out. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have this ideological agenda to privatize. On the other hand, you have companies ready to come in, swoop in, and uh, and take the profits from that sort of privatization. We can see that also in schools, where ALEC has pushed numerous ways to privatize schools and push for charters. And then who's funding ALEC? Companies that uh, benefit from uh, charters, companies that promote this charterization like K-12 and and other um, for-profit school companies. So you see this marriage between this ideological agenda and this Agreed, basically, and I uh, I suspect you know as as you discovered that push to uh, to privatize the delivery of military ballot overseas military ballots um, because you know in that case they know oh every time there's an election there's going to be tons and tons of mail of absentee ballots coming from overseas that would be a a, a funding source every year every two years every four years whatever it is and I suspect that uh, David Koch and and friends uh, Charles Koch. Which Coke are we on here? Uh, Charles. Uh, Charles. Charles. And and his friends uh, now probably see this move to vote by mail during the pandemic, not just by, you know, military folks, but by the entire country. They probably see that as a huge threat to their longtime efforts uh, to kill the Postal Service, especially if people find that they really like voting by mail. And at the same time, as we're talking about, you know, the, the, the marriage of the ideological and the, the, the profit makers here, the Koch brothers, uh, and now I guess since David died, I guess just just his brother Charles have attempted, you write, to distance themselves from Donald Trump. But in reality, you go through in detail how, how uh, uh, Koch uh, has pretty much been supporting pretty much all of Trump's efforts uh, here, and we have a, a place where... Koch's interests now and Trump's absolutely converge in taking down the Postal Service. Is is that because Trump actually wants to gut and privatize the USPS because he hates Jeff Bezos? Or is it because he wants all that sweet Coke money and and support for his faltering reelection campaign at this time? Or is this just another marriage of convenience where everything comes nicely together? Well, that's a great question, Brad. You know, so Charles Koch has really made a, a public showing of his um, personal dislike for Trump, but he's also bragged uh, behind closed doors about how successful he's been in this administration in terms of pushing through what he described as once-in-a-generation mm-hmm. tax cuts for himself that have enriched himself and his family and his billionaire buddies. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also targeted the Supreme Court for putting on uh, putting these judges on who have been, you know, extreme, like Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. uh, who um, Donald Trump has put forward as, on the advice of Leonard Leo, who's also been funded uh, by Charles Koch. Um, in terms of, you know, direct funding to Trump, I don't have any um, information about dollars this year or anything from Charles Koch to the Trump campaign. But what we know from 2016 is that the extraordinary efforts that Charles Koch's groups engaged in in 2016 uh, hiring 650 field staff, knocking on millions and millions of doors, um, and doing other outreach across the country to try to secure the Senate, that that all really helped Trump. It really buoyed Trump or buoyed Trump in that election um, and, uh, and also helped secure the United States Senate and Mitch McConnell's uh, role there 
as this, uh, you know, person who's basically doing the bidding of Trump uh, at, at almost every point. And so um, I think that you have this merger of interests where Donald Trump doesn't pay much attention to details, as we know. He doesn't pay that much attention to facts, as mm-hmm. we know. And in that vacuum, someone like Koch and his operatives, who are literally in, you know, all sorts of key positions in the administration, including Mark Short, who is the former head of Charles Koch's Freedom Partners, mm. Chamber of Commerce is now the main advisor to Mike to Mark, pardon me, to Mike Pence. Uh, he and Mark Short was previously an advisor to the uh, White House directly, not just over in the in the uh, VP's office. Yep. Um, you have so many ways in which um, in which the in which the Koch team has played key roles in this administration, including, for example, one of the guys who was pushing for more uh, toll toll roads as part of this infrastructure. Uh, these infrastructure plans, and on and on and on. So Trump, Koch has benefited enormously from Trump. He, his, his operations helped Trump win office. And they plan this year, they've announced that they're going to have this, this year be the biggest year ever uh, for their electoral activities. And so um, that could only mean that they, that, that like, electoral activity will likely uh, benefit Trump. And I'll tell you, and I'll point uh, folks, of course, to your uh, brief uh, research here, the billionaire behind efforts to kill the U.S. Postal Service uh, at inthepublicinterest.org, Lisa. But I think, you know, one of my takeaways was uh, just how far back this effort goes, how long it continues, how much uh, these, and I refuse to call them conservatives, because as American Conservative Magazine uh, you know, points out, you know, going essentially against the Constitution is not what we traditionally describe as conservatism. But, you know, it, it, it shows how just year after year, decade after decade, when these guys have something that they want, they will stay at it at all costs year after year, decade after decade, and incrementally get to the point where we have no choice but to give them what they want. And and key to that was the 2006 Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, which was championed by Susan Collins, senator from Maine, who is up for re-election this year. I've got just a minute or two here, uh, Lisa, but it's so important that people understand the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act and how, uh, without that act, over the past six years, the, the Postal Service would have been running a profit year after year after year. Uh, explain the, uh, the PAEA very quickly uh, before we get out of here, just so people understand. And then tell me why it is the Democrats didn't overturn it when they had the chance, when they had control of Congress after uh, Obama came into office. So the, the 2006 Act was pushed into law by James Miller, who was Charles Coates' longtime ally and has been his longtime ally mm-hmm. at American Prosperity, Citizens for a Sound Economy. Um, and he worked with Susan Collins. Susan Collins uh, helped push that bill through. And what it did was it saddled the Postal Service with unprecedented debt. It required it to pay its um, future health care benefits 50 years in advance. No other agency and no private sector company has that obligation. Mm-hmm. It also, um, what, what they also did was move in a, a millions of, of dollars, uh, actually billions of dollars of savings mm-hmm. um, that the Postal Service had and move it into that fund. And so um, it has really been saddled with this debt uh, due to Susan Collins and, and due to James Miller and, and President George W. Bush. When the Democrats had uh, some power to address this, what they did was push through a measure to hold those payments off 
uh, from from uh, about 2010 until 2016. Um, but then they started coming due again about four years ago. And so they didn't reverse that course, unfortunately. They just delayed it. And that delay um, has now come to bear where that original law in 2006 um, is putting this debt onto the Postal, yeah. Service, uh, Postal Service's um, books and also has prevented it from investing in other ways to improve its services. So it's not just that that money has, has gone onto the books and some of it has actually been allocated for real, mm-hmm. but also that money hasn't been spent on other things to help make the Postal Service work even better for us. Yeah, and when you have uh, Lou DeJoy, the new Postmaster General, saying, well, you know, look at U.S. Steel, look what, you know, they, they don't exist anymore. Well, they do exist, but his point being that, uh, you know, if, if you don't adapt, you will die. Well, the Postal Service might like to adapt. They might like to offer banking services as they used to decades ago. They might like to, uh, you know, open cafes at the post office. All of that has been disallowed by Congress. So when you hear the Republicans talking about, oh, the, uh, as Trump said, the, the Postal Service is a joke, uh, the, you know, the mail is never on time, whatever attacks they want to make, it's because they have enabled uh, all of that to happen. They have prevented the Postal Service from adapting, from uh, profitize, profitizing on what it does. And, you know, they want it to be U.S. steel. They want to put them out of business. Uh, really important, as usual, really important research from Lisa Graves. As I say, we will link over to it. Uh, Lisa, we usually talk to you on this show about Trump's destruction of the rule of law and the DOJ. But I'm, uh, I'm sort of glad to that take uh, Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. sort of glad to take a break from it, although this isn't much of a break. Uh, nonetheless, I suspect we will talk, be talking more about that very soon as the Bill Barr, Donald Trump undermining of the rule of law Mm. continues apace. So uh, thank you in advance for coming back soon, Lisa. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad, uh, and thank you to your listeners. Thank you. Uh, you can find Lisa's all-important work, of course, at truenorthresearch.org, as well as this uh, uh, new research at inthepublicinterest.org. You can also follow her on the Twitters at the Lisa Graves. <sighs> Until next time, Lisa, thank you again. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Okay, quick break. We're back with the closing few minutes of the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Speaking of Susan Collins there, uh, there were elections in Maine on Tuesday. And Susan Collins' uh, opponent has now been uh, verified, or whatever we call that, (laughs) has now been chosen uh, on the Democratic side. Sarah Gideon uh, will be running against Susan Collins. Uh, She's brought in a lot of money. She's spent a lot of money already. She was already running against Collins, essentially, for many months now. Um, She brought in uh, more than $17 million since uh, through late June. That's five times what Collins' last opponent, 
uh, had spent for her entire campaign back in 2014. Collins has already spent nearly $11 million. That's more than double what she spent in 2014. And um, she gets another huge windfall now as uh, she becomes the official Democratic nominee. Uh, Gideon does. She will receive around $4 million from a, quote, nominee fund that donors filled with money when Susan Collins voted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Uh, back in uh, whenever that was, I've lost track. When was I think that, that was twenty year before last. Eight, oh my god! Ten Not years even ago. Try. I know it feels like it was a thousand years ago. A couple of weeks yesterday. ago. Yeah, exactly. I have no idea. That money at the time was contributed to whoever uh, became the eventual nominee against uh, against Susan Collins. So uh, both parties believe that race is going to come down to the wire and could uh, very well be the tipping point that determines Senate control, according to uh, according to Politico. I actually had a lot more of that I hope to do uh, on uh, Tuesday's elections, some of which we know about, others we don't uh, because of delays in absentee ballots coming in and so forth. We know that Jeff Sessions will not be running for Senate. For the U.S. Senate, for his old seat there, he was defeated by uh, former Auburn University football coach Tommy Tuberville. And yes, womp, womp. it is Tuberville. I was thinking it was Tuberville this whole time. Uh, anyway, yeah, Donald Trump had endorsed Tuberville against his old pal Jeff Sessions because he's still mad at Jeff Sessions for daring to follow the law as the attorney general and recuse himself from the Russia investigation. How dare he? So uh, that cost uh, Jeff Sessions the nomination there for his old seat, and I guess his uh, career is over. It's on to wingnut welfare, no doubt, for Jeff Sessions. But hey, uh, maybe uh, David Koch, Charles Koch, David's the dead one, right? Yes. Charles Koch, maybe he's got some extra money for Jeff Sessions <laughs> to help him destroy the post office and and the rest of the country along with it. Anyway, we'll try to catch up on so much that we couldn't get to today on our next thrilling broadcast. I hope you will join me for that. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Lisa Graves of True North Research, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. A service made possible by listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And if my Twitter account is not locked, you can uh, tweet me at thebradblog. Also on the Facebooks at thebradblog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.